Hi, everyone. <laughs> Happy Sunday. Today is Sunday, August 14th. You're watching Unsafe Space, and this is our book club, which we do. We try to do once a month. It's probably once every six weeks or so. Uh, I'm Carter, and uh, our new format for book club is I'll be explaining the book that we're going to talk about. Uh, hopefully, I won't take too long. I'll do that for a few minutes, and then we'll bring in uh, other people who've read the book, and we'll have a discussion about it. So, um, welcome. This month's book is Fossil Future by Alex Epstein. Now, Alex is a guy who wrote uh, a book a few years ago called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which I read um, and enjoyed. And so this book, I actually was hesitant to pick it up at first because even though I like Alex and I think he's smart and he makes great arguments – I kind of felt like, well, I've heard the moral case for fossil fuels. Why do I need to hear more about the moral case for fossil fuels? Um, why do I, you know, I, I've, I've read some alternative literature on on climate change, etc. And I figured um, maybe I didn't need this book. I was completely wrong. This is an, is an excellent, excellent book. It's probably one of the most, I think it's probably one of the most important books to read if you want to be engaged honestly in the climate change discussion at all. Um, and you know, we were talking before the show, it is a little bit long. Um, and, but that's it, but it's very easy to read. It's, it's predominantly long because there's lots of summaries and like, as I said before, here's a summary, blah, blah, blah. So it's super easy to read. You could probably, I didn't listen to it, but you could probably listen to it on, on tape or whatever very easily. But, um, one of the most important, there's two major reasons why I, I like this book. And one does have to do with the arguments about how to rationally approach climate change and make decisions about fossil fuel usage and what are the right things to do and and how to um, you know basically understand um, the full context of the issues surrounding the climate change and energy debates. But the more what I think is even more important is uh, this book. It, it provides a lesson in the in rational evaluation by non-experts of complex problems. And I, and that's not just limited to, you know, he doesn't talk about other problems really, but that, that framework can be applied to a plethora of things in our modern, our modern world. I mean, when you have, um, when you have a super primitive world or, or you're just going for a primitive understanding, like a child's understanding of things, um, you can kind of directly observe reality, use your basic observational skills and, come to conclusions, right? You can, I have a nine month old right now and you can see like she, she realizes that when she holds her food off of the high chair and drops it, it hits the floor. Like that's, she can conclude gravity from that pr pretty early on. Like maybe not understanding what it is, but like, Hey, when you drop things, they fall. Um, if you want deeper understanding, you need more than just basic reasoning skills. We have the scientific method. And, you know, if you go through, I, I assume that American junior high schools still kind of cover this stuff, but who knows? Uh, you, you'll understand F equals MA, and you'll you'll understand how to do careful observation and analysis, and and draw kind of deeper understandings. But our modern world is so complex; we rely on a lot of hyper specialization, um, and and it's impossible for one person to even understand relatively simple things. There's a there's a famous like article called I Pencil by Leonard Reed. And Milton Friedman talks about this. Uh, Milton Friedman has given a speech called, I think nobody can make a pencil or something. And he talks about how 
look, just just the knowledge to make a simple. I don't have actually a simple wooden pencil with me, or I would use it as a prop. I've got a here. I got a mechanical pencil. We'll pretend that it's wooden. Um, even just the knowledge to do, to do that is not something that any one person possesses. Um, and he and he talks about that. And so when you come to something as complex as uh, climate change and energy production, um, none of us have a direct understanding of the science. We rely on this chain of information to bring uh, what she's calling the knowledge system uh, to bring that information from experts to us. Hold on for just a sec. I spilled my drink this early in the morning. Um, so he's he, he talks about this knowledge system about how to bring this. And look, even if you're – the world is so complex that now if you're a climate expert, you might be a, a very narrow expert in one area but not understand other areas. You might not understand energy. If you're an energy expert, you might really understand how solar works, but really maybe you don't understand fossil fuels as much or you don't understand um, you know, some of the, the, the details about how you know, non-electric energy is used like industrial heat or that kind of thing. So he, he describes this chain of information, which he calls a knowledge system. And I think understanding how to identify systemic errors and there is kind of a crucial lesson to independent rational thinking. And when it comes to climate and energy, this is kind of what he's doing. And he's showing us that, hey, look, the system is telling us that we must end fossil fuel usage. It's this life or death huge thing. We have to do it. It's catastrophic. That's what the system's telling us. You see this, you know, Western governments especially, but you see this all the time. You, you know, I think their latest thing is net zero by 2050. Um. And uh, and they're telling anyone who disagrees with the political conclusions uh, that they're, you know, science knuckle dragon science deniers, they're climate change deniers, um, and so it's really this Manichaean uh, categorization where, like, you either buy hook, line, and sinker everything that the the policies that are being foisted on us without asking questions and without being skeptical, uh, or you're uh, a knuckle dragging idiot who doesn't understand the science and screw you. Right. And like that makes it very convenient for people who have no uh, coherent arguments or have poor arguments because they don't have to argue with you. They just say, you know, you're a stupid Fox news listener, go away. Um, and of course, Alex is not a climate change denier in the sense that he does think rational because it's rational to think this, <laughs> like he does think, Oh, what humans do with burning fossil fuels does impact the environment. Let's take a look at how it impacts the environment. Let's take a look at what it does. Oh, it does cause CO2 buildup. Oh, CO2 is a greenhouse gas. Like these aren't, these aren't things that he denies. Um, and I think a lot of people would be dismissive uh, of the title because they're, they're going to assume this is a kind of, I hate to throw all the right wing under the bus, but like a right wing denial, like kind of a crazy, like, ah, you know, all this stuff is bunk. Climate science is made up. Um, but what I really love about the book and, um, people who know me know why I would love this. The book identifies the philosophical roots of these systemic errors. In fact, I'm going to turn to page 73 because I, I, <laughs> I starred this. I made a little notation here. It's music to my ears. I never hear this when someone's writing. So it's great. He writes, He's, he's asking a bunch of questions about, you know, what can we, you know, that, what does 
what does explain our knowledge systems and our energy failure if ignorance can't blah 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 he's asking these questions and he says the answers lie in the subject that is considered the least practical but that i chose for my profession because i consider it the most practical philosophy um so and he you know he goes on to talk about the uh premises that we we accept usually implicitly we normally don't realize we're accepting these premises um these premises that we accept when we have these discussions and he talks about uh kind of anti-impact or the delicate balance uh, premise uh which is this idea it's kind of a the delicate balance is kind of a disney disney-fied thing um if you watch there's just a show that i was uh, i watched a couple episodes of like a few months ago i forget the name of it but it, it was alan tudjik was in it and it was like this oh they they kind of <sighs> worshipped how the 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 indigenous culture uh there's there's a bunch of indigenous culture people yeah right so native native americans is the 80s phrase we would use <laughs> native americans in this in this show there's a community of them and there's an alien that's that's you know they're visiting basically and um he thinks humans are horrible, but these Native Americans, they really understand the delicate balance of the earth. And if only their ideas could take over, then the earth would be a wonderful place. But it's these nasty parasitic humans that are the rest of them that are the problem. And that kind of delicate balance is something that we we see in Disney movies all the time. We see this, this idea that like nature is this really fragile, beautiful, wonderful system that's there for us and would support us. But we have to be these greedy capitalist parasitic pigs. And once we fuck it up now, it's gonna we're gonna destroy it for all of us. And, and destruction is inevitable because we're 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 the parasites. Um and so it leads to this anti-impact thing where any impact is viewed instantaneously as bad, right? Um and he talks about how, you know, not only is it viewed as intrinsically immoral, this impact, but that it also is viewed as it will necessarily lead to a uh, discombobulation of the system and therefore our extinction and, and or suffering because we're going to perturb this beautiful thing that's been supporting us and uh, stupid us, foolish us for doing that. Um, and he contrasts that with his framework, which I think is a rational framework, which I've actually used these, these this language before. I probably got it from Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, so it probably came from Alex originally. Um, but uh, he talks about the the human flourishing flame framework and what he calls the wild potential perspective. Um, and he basically says, look, impact on our environment is a requirement for human flourishing. It's, it's how we survive. It's how we, it's how we live as humans. Um, so any impact that we have needs to be uh, judged in relation to how it hinders or enhances our flourishing, which is this full context. You can't just say, well, you change this thing in nature, therefore that's bad because that's what we do. That's how we survive. And he 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 describes nature as dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. And those are the three the three descriptors he uses for nature. Um, so he has this like delicate balance view of nature versus his version, which is this wild potential view of nature. Um, and he talks about how we kind of accept this delicate balance one without really thinking about it. And really, it's the wild potential is a more accurate description of nature. And I'm going to read, I'm embarrassed to do this because I'm not a poet. It's not good. Please do not judge. Like, you know, I'm not saying we should publish this in a book and you like it. But several years ago, this must have been, it was probably 10 years ago. Um, 
because it was shortly after I had my first child. I was like, I like the ritual of saying thanks, like doing a thankful prayer at the beginning of a meal. But of course, I'm an atheist. So uh, <laughs> like I, what I like the ritual, like what do we do? Uh, we, I mean, we can't say a prayer. Um, and beyond the obvious, like thanking the, the direct people, like thank you for making the meal or buying them food, like, okay, that that's fine. But what's the higher thing? Like, what could we? And so I, I thought about this, and we have we don't read it all the time, but we do sometimes on special occasions. We have we have this thing that I wrote that we <laughs> that sits by the table, um, which is called Grace to the Deserving. And I'm going to read it because this is this is the conclusion that I drew about um, our situation in in the first world and our lifestyle and what we ought to be thankful for and the natural state of us in the world. Um, this is prior to the way. This is like 10 years. So remember, I might mention something about <clears throat> microorganisms or whatever, but uh, I'm not talking about COVID and Pfizer predates. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. This meal is a gladiator's victory, one over nature, that murderous foe in this old planetary coliseum, blithely indifferent to creatures below. We owe our lives to geniuses before us who fought her and won by brain over brawn. Though through our inheritance leisure abounds, we should not forget those battle lines drawn. Against pathogens, they brought Prometheus. Against famine, farming. Against effort, electricity. Against miles, motors. Against rotting, refrigeration. Against fiefs, freedom. To live, produce, and trade voluntarily. Bounties but envied by yesterday's kings. Again, it's not poetry, but the... Um, the truth is our natural state, nature, it doesn't hate us. It's worse. It's literally indifferent. <laughs> it doesn't care. It does. It just doesn't care. Um, and the universe, our world is full of ways for us to die and suffer. And our lives for most of humanity have been absolutely horrific. So the question is what changed? What changed? And one of Alex's answers is, hey, cheap energy. <laughs> like, we figured out cheap energy. And so using this, this framework that, that he is, is adopting called human flourishing, he demonstrates how this climate knowledge system is failing us. It's ignoring or minimizing the amazing benefits of fossil fuels, right? So um, making this what he calls unnaturally livable world, which is what we're in today. He calls he talks about how it's a multiplication of human labor, which it is. We couldn't possibly lots of things we couldn't possibly do without cheap uh, cheap sources of energy. He talks about something I think is often not talked about, which is the how using machine power frees us up to devote mental energy to other things and all the specialization that we expect, all the things that we want out of the world, all the advances that we rely on already and all the ones that we're anticipating all require that someone can not spend 98% of their day foraging for food and chopping wood and whatever else they need to do to, to stay alive. But they can devote that time to reading, studying, doing whatever, like research, figuring out that next new innovation. And without that mental time, we don't have any of the things that we have. We don't have the abundance that we have. And so um, he talks about fossil fuels being unique in that they are abundant, they have concentrated energy, and they're stored. And those are the big things. Um, he talks about how uh, the current framework kind of ignores the massive human cost to having less 
available or much more expensive and less available power. Um, he talks about how the current system catastrophizes all the negative benefits, particularly carbon dioxide. Um, yes, it's there. Yes, there could be some negative side effects to it. Sure, sure there are. But are there positive ones? Is it really an, on whole? Is it bad? If it is bad, is it something that's overcomable? Uh, is the is the is it worth abandoning this this basically magic thing, which is fossil fuel energy? It's not obviously about magic, but um, he talks about ignoring the ability of fossil fuels to neutralize these negative side effects. Right, that's the human perspective. Where the environment is for us. Right, it's for us to flourish. Um, he talks about how much the green movement misrepresents uh, the ease with which fossil fuels can be replaced, um, and uh, and even opposes energy that actually would be cleaner and 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 greener and and cheaper in the long run. Possibly, uh, nuclear is a, a, the primary example, but also hydroelectric and just you know. Those are also opposed, which which indicates that there's this deep anti-impact or kind of anti-human um, premise that's being operated on, even if it's not identified explicitly. Um, so in the goal of human flourishing, you know, we need to understand the full context, not only of the negative side effects of, of, of fossil fuels, but the positive uh, side effects as well, or if there's, a, if there's mixed results. Um, and not only the advantages of other methods, but their downsides. And not only the benefits of eliminating fossil fuels, but also the cost, which would be devastating for humanity. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show just. I just want to show one slide um, because um, I think, I think it's really this is the knowledge system slide, and I really want to. Man, this is never as easy as I want it to be. Hold on for a second. Uh, Sorry, I thought it was going to work, but it wasn't working the way I wanted it to. Uh, I'll just share it here. Okay, so um, I'll share it this way, which is not ideal. So this knowledge system that he talks about, the way that I think about it is, you know, there's reality here, which is super complex. We'll never understand. We're not ever going to be omniscient. Um, so we'll never really understand everything about reality. And for some things, like I said, for primitive understanding, we can kind of just directly access it. But for the complexity of where we are, something like climate change and energy consumption, there are these, there's this kind of uh, sieve <laughs> that information goes through, which is, okay, researchers are looking at one particular aspect of reality. And he talks about how can research be biased and what are the inherent biases that are existing today in maybe prioritization of funding for research or uh, ostracization if you do the wrong kind of research or come to the wrong kind of conclusions or what kind of research is being paid attention to, right? He doesn't really get into errors that people are making scientifically with the research because I don't, he doesn't need to. They, we can assume that the research is, is correct scientifically, even though that might not always be the case. Then he talks about how there's people who need to synthesize that, right? Because this research is highly, highly specialized. So then you have groups like the IPCC who are going to say, okay, we're going to survey all the state-of-the-art research. We're going to, we have enough expertise to understand it enough to synthesize it and distill it for you so that you, you we understand the state of the art right now. And there's, there's errors that are made along these, all these errors basically are because of this hidden premise, this unacknowledged 
uh, anti-impact premise. There's there's errors that are made along this along synthesis. So one of the, I mean, he he goes into the IPCC report not in in depth, but in uh, a few places in the book, and he gives examples of like here's a section of the report that's actually not that bad, but the summary is completely not doesn't reflect this at all and how the summary of the report which is most of what people read doesn't even act accurately reflect the synthesis itself um and then you have dissemination uh you have spokespeople predominantly disseminating this information and of course there's uh cherry picking and catastrophization and all this other kind of thing that can happen with dissemination and then there's evaluation which is like okay well what are we going to do about how are we going to evaluate this what should we do and i think the big error, not the only error, but the big error that uh, happens um, by the time it goes through this, you know, the information goes through this entire process, the, the big mistake that's made is the dismissal of the value of fossil fuels and their ability to, like, there's no, it's like a balance sheet where only the costs are added up and none of the revenue is added up. Only, like, all the liabilities and none of the assets. So they were presented with article after article in mainstream media and expert actor after expert talking about, hey, these are all the liabilities that this has. Look at how horrible it is. And if all you see are the liabilities, we go, well, yeah, that, that sounds pretty bad. Let's get rid of it. Where, But in fact, there's a tremendous uh, there's a tremendous number of assets in the asset column that greatly outweigh uh the liabilities and if you're just if you evaluate a business but don't look at the assets and only the liabilities you're going to conclude that it's a shitty business right and so it's the same kind of thing you're going to conclude that wow fossil fuels are a really dumb thing it's horrible for us to do it's stupid it's killing the environment it's going to eventually kill us um when in fact uh not having fossil fuels not relying on fossil fuels and, and using them and actually increasing fossil fuel usage in the near term uh, and near to midterm uh, would be devastating not only for many of us in the first world, but it's completely callous and heartless to do to people in uh, what he calls un the unempowered world, the people who don't have access to power, which is billions of people across the globe. Um, and we can get into that a little bit. Um, but I feel like I've spoken enough. I don't want to, I don't want to, do too much. I think we said 15 minutes to half an hour, or whatever. I don't know. I'm probably at 20 minutes. So I will stop there and let's have our discussion. Let's bring in, uh, let's bring in Alex. Oh, any, whoever, bring in everyone, Beverly. It's not up to me. You do your thing. <laughs> Hi, everyone. So let's first just get some thoughts. Um, I'm, I've heard from Alex. Uh, and Keith, just in company meetings, some generally positive thoughts. Uh, I know more about Thomas. I actually want to start with Caleb because I don't know you very well, Caleb. And if anyone's going to hate this book, it's going to be the guy I don't know because you might. I don't know. So what did you think about this? Well, I hate to disappoint, but I actually loved it. Um, I thought that that's all right we'll find a book you hate don't worry oh thank you uh i, I thought that this guy does a he, he approaches dogma in the way that a good polemic should which is to acknowledge it on the face and then slide invisible knives in its back as soon as nobody's looking 
So one way you can do that is by going, oh, yeah, sure, climate change. Climate change is real. And then immediately list 10,000 reasons why the uh, why all the authorities are wrong about it. Because he knows – this guy knows, I think, that he's going to get called a crackpot and a conspiracy theorist and a tinfoil hat wearer, et cetera, et cetera, probably even a Republican. If <laughs> Yes, I'm sure. Think that <laughs> anthrogenic climate change is both real and significant. So the way around that, since because as soon as you say that, you lose people. It shuts off. The way around that is to go, sure, yeah, climate change is real. Yes, it's caused by humans. Yes, it has significant impacts. And then launch into the case why it's not. And then by the time you're done, the fact that you acknowledged it at the beginning doesn't matter. So stylistically, I think the book is very clever in that way. Yep. Do you do you think that your your description of it has me uh, suspicious that your analysis that is that it's a brilliant piece of sophistry, but in fact, there's not really a there there. No, uh, no, I, I, I completely agree. I just think that rhetoric is important too. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I agree with pretty much everything uh, Alex Epstein says. And in fact, I, I would go so far as to say I'm a little more extreme than he is in some ways. That being said, so? I, I, I think that... He does a very good job at undermining the existing authorities, which is great. What we need right now, because we live in an age where government is trying to basically use science as a cudgel or scientific institutions as a cudgel, you know, just if anybody doesn't want to do what you tell them, scream the word science until they, <laughs> until they do what you say. <laughs> Uh, and, and you'll, you'll notice this in the way sci the word science is used in the media. They say things like, well, some new science came out, so Fauci changed his mind, for example, as if science were nice. some like glowing substance I could find under my fridge or some nonsense <laughs> like that. So I, I, I think that the, the really the value of this book is that it pokes holes in things that need to have holes poked in them. And it actually changed my mind which is rare because I'm so stupid and stubborn, but it actually changed my mind. And the, the way that it changed my mind was this. I had thought that... Essentially, I had bought into the impact framework without knowing it. And this completely opened my eyes that, no, the impact framework is not the correct way to assess environmental effects of our actions. The correct way is to see it from the standpoint of human flourishing. Because if you take it to its logical conclusion, in order to have zero impact on the world around you, you have to stop existing. Right. And that's pretty much what people, what the most radical environmentalists want us to do. Uh, there's a deep ecologist named Penti Linkola. He's Finnish, and he literally thinks that humans should go down to under 100,000 individuals, and most people should just be genocided. That's sort of – I'm not saying that other environmentalists believe that, but that's the logical conclusion because the only way to stop having any impact on the world around you is to stop existing. That which exists has an impact. You could almost define existence as causality. If it exists, it must do something, and if yep. it does something, it impacts the world around it. So eliminating human impact is a nonsensical goal unless you're just trying to kill us all. Now, that being said, there was an Anglican bishop in I think the 17 or 1800s named William Ralph Ing or Inge, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but he, he had this quote that a lot of people glom onto that's where he said, people feel themselves attracted by God or nature when really they are only repelled by man, meaning that a lot of these hermits and monks and solitaries and also a lot of people who go to live in nature or who are hardcore nature lovers tend to be misanthropes. 
that there is at bottom a kind of subliminal hatred of the human species that underlies a lot of the more radical environmentalism and also to be frank a lot of really fanatical religious feeling is the same way so i would say that he does a really good job of exposing that without saying it outright but he and i i, I also reading this book was very vindicating for me because he said things that I had long suspected but couldn't find evidence for. For example, that climate scientists exaggerate things to try and goose people into action. There's a point where he quotes a famous client, uh, climate scientist at Stanford who in 1996 said uh, – it's, it's a whole paragraph, but to summarize, he basically said, yeah, sometimes we got to make shit up or exaggerate. Because yep. it's for something. a good cause, right? He presented it as an ethical dilemma, right? Like, well, we know the right thing. Death. The road to hell is paved with what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But the, I, I love that passage as well, Caleb, because it was just – there are a few spots in the book where the the villains say their thing, right? Like right – that's one of the spots where he's like, well, we might need to lie to people. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, really? And there's, there's other spots where – yeah, he catches environmentalists actually saying, I don't think he's, they say exactly what you're saying, but stuff that's pretty close. It's like, yeah, we need fewer people. And like, like basically like, yeah, people suck. It's like, oh, oh, oh that, that is your goal. Yes. <laughs> if I can, if I can pontificate just a little more, there's something that came to mind while I was reading this book that I really want to say um, that I think kind of dovetails with everything that Epstein says. Resource scarcity, or excuse me, artificial resource scarcity is a very convenient mechanism of control. There's this apocryphal story, it probably didn't really happen, about Joseph Stalin that I'm going to use anyway because it's good for illustrative purposes, that he took a chicken and plucked its feathers out while it was alive, which is excruciating for the chicken, and then threw it. And then he started to throw it food. And it followed him because he fed it even though he just tortured it, meaning if you have someone by the neck and you control supplies of things they need, they're very easy to control. This is why the Soviets had a tendency to control people by starving them. And it occurs to me that artificial energy scarcity could serve a very similar purpose. If you can say to people, oh, well, you had the wrong opinion on social media, so now your monthly electricity allowance is cut down. Oh, ha, 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 you can't call that uh, abridgment of free speech because it's the power company and they're private. Right. I, I, I could see that happening in five or ten years, certainly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, what's Thomas, Alex, Keith? Any anyone want to jump in and give us your thoughts on this book? Thomas, go, Sir Thomas. Okay. So um, one thing that Caleb said made me think. I've had similar thoughts when you were talking about. Um, misanthropes and their hatred for humanity. I also think of that as people who tend to say things like, ah, I just hate people. I'm not going out. I always think I take it even a step further. I think, no, you just hate yourself and you're actually projecting that onto other mm -hmm. human beings when really it's just you that needs to work on yourself. Cause we're a lot of us are pretty decent. I mean, Here's five of us right now, not so bad at all. You know, come on out and have a chat, you know. Um, and I, I, much like what you said, Carter, where you appreciated the philosophy 
underneath it. The whole first portion of the book where he sets up the philosophy of those people who have this anti-impact framework um, is where I fell in love with the book. And I actually stopped and I sent him a DM in Twitter and said, hey, um, thanks so much for writing this. Um, you are who I want to be when I, uh, as a writer, uh, as far as explaining, um, because the audience that he can reach out to with the way that he held our hands and said, here, this is what I'm showing you. What do you think of this? Now, remember, we talked about this. That's how this is coming up. And it really just keeps reinforcing that over and over and over again. And I think to a really broad audience, um, this can be incredibly helpful. And now that I understand the very specifics and how to articulate what that anti-impact framework consists of, um, it's, I think it's really going to help me understand what I'm seeing um, when we have the policies. And it's funny, we just had a new policy pass you know, the House and the Senate. And sorry, Keith is the uh, constitutionalist. He's going to yell at me for saying the wrong thing in the wrong order. <laughs> but whatever happened, that, that's, probably, that's probably incredibly catastrophic. Um, and I, what I really liked is when he he said he, he would bring in the words of the people who have this anti-impact framework and say, well, it's not me just saying that this is what they believe. Here's an example. And this is one of my favorite examples. Biologist David Grader that was reviewing Bill McKibben's book. And he says, McKibben is a biocentrist and so am I. We are not interested in the utility of a particular species or free-flowing river or ecosystem to mankind. They have intrinsic value, more value to me than another human body or a billion of them. Human happiness and certainly human fecundity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. Until such time as Homo sapiens should decide to rejoin nature, some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. There's so much in that to where when, when he talks about them being anti-human, I don't know anything more anti-human than that. He doesn't care about human individuals, much as billions of them. He, see, he says that we have to rejoin nature, which already assumes that we're not part of nature as if we're some kind of thing that's outside of nature. Um, you know, so it's kind of like they're saying these things and these are the people that you are um, appointing as your climate experts and they hate themselves and they hate you. And it's yep. really hard to get people to understand how important ideas are because we're so far separated in enjoying our lives that we don't know that the everyday enjoyment that we have is so deeply rooted in ideas, just like the ability is so deeply rooted in fossil fuel materials and fossil fuel provided energy that it's, it's really tough to bridge those gaps. And I really like how he did bridge those gaps um, thoroughly. And I, you know, and I kept seeing, I, it kept opening my eyes to everything else to where he kept talking about the vague ideas of climate change and climate denial and climate change is real, how almost everything in our current political environment is only a slogan. People don't even have ideas. All they have are slogans and they don't take any time to say, okay, what does that slogan mean? Where does it come from? We saw, we see it with uh, climate change that he had, that he displays in the book here. We saw it with BLM to where 
I even had a online discussion with a leading progressive um, podcaster, and I had to tell her what was on the BLM website. But all she had was the um, slogan, and that's all that matters. Um, and it seems like everything has been sloganized, and nobody's connecting to these underlying ideas. And he just did such an excellent idea, uh, excellent job at doing that. And uh, whatever I write moving on, I, I keep feeling like I got to think about the manner in which he did it and really start to pull people along. Yeah, I mean the those slogans. I think it's intentional, right? Because if they were if they were explicit about what their ideas were, they would get rejected. So they have to come up with slogans that sound uh, sound peachy. Yeah, um, and I, I never you know, know at what at what level it's incredibly intentional or not. Because I know a lot of normal, nice, good people, and I'm related to them, and they might use slogans. Um, you know, so I think a lot of people that are adopting these slogans, you know. They, they just don't understand what's beneath it and they get really comfortable. And like Thomas Sowell said, they get comfortable in their moral, in their ignorance because it's rooted in moral superiority that it's really hard to pull them away from that stuff. And yeah. I see it with the climate yeah. thing as well. Yeah. Whenever, whenever anyone like that guy says like, oh, we should rejoin nature. I, I, I immediately think like you first, bub, strip off your <laughs> yeah. clothes and we'll drop you in Do a it. forest. Like rejoin buddy. Like that's how, if, that's if how were, it always is. Right. But he's not, he probably, the guy probably lives in a major city mm -hmm. um, and uses DoorDash and watches Netflix. <laughs> right. But, but he's going to tell us that we need a buy. He reminds me of the villain in Kingsman. Do you guys remember the movie Kingsman? <laughs> There's the Samuel L. Jackson plays an environmentalist who wants to, who does uh, enact a plan to kill billions of people because, for the it's the exact same thing. It's basically I feel like someone read what the environmentalists were actually saying and was like, "That would be a great supervillain. Let's just make a supervillain." Well, isn't, isn't, isn't it that that guy Thanos with the rings? Isn't that exactly what that is? Well, and I don't know. See, I don't watch the Marvel stuff. I've watched maybe half of one, but I know so who Thanos. Thanos's is. plan is to. And I've written about this and how and its environmental impact on the Earth specifically. His plan was to kill half of all life and they made it really specific they said life not sapient life life which meant all half of our animals too and it's like okay well then i'm pretty sure that's a like extinction level event on planet earth uh because that's a stupid idea and um it was a it, it was a stupid environmental message that they change from the comic books wherein he's actually it's so stupid he's courting death and for some reason that makes more sense than what they put in the mcu <laughs> but um when it comes to the whole rejoining nature or whatever i'm always so pissed off because i'm like we are part of nature any species that gets advanced enough that gets as its population growth up high enough becomes more complex and has more impact on its environment, sometimes in a negative way to its own, you know, progress. So obviously this is already natural. This is natural. Like our impact is already natural. So to like beavers build dams and their dams have an impact on plant life, on, you know, anything in the water. It, it lakes down the stream 
like everything. They have an impact on everything. And that's beavers. They're not even that big of a species if you look at it from a global perspective. So to me, this idea that, oh, we shouldn't have an impact. Yes, we absolutely should. We're the only species, though, who is smart enough to recognize that we have an impact and could, and could do something to mitigate it if we wanted to, if it felt necessary. Some of them, yes, feel necessary to, for us to mitigate for our own, you know, long-term health and everything. Like, we don't want to drink poisoned water. That makes sense. Uh, we, want our, we, we want our farmland to be healthy. That means being smart about how we farm, those kinds of things. But they're being really dumb because they focus on one thing, and that one thing is CO2. And it makes no sense to me. Like, and that's almost entirely what this book is about: is the CO two impact. They, there's nothing for most environmentalists about soy health, water health. Like, especially when you talk to people like on a grand scale, like just general public, the sloganeers, they have no idea what's going on with ocean acidity. There's nothing. They have none of that data, and they don't even try to look at it. And it drives me crazy because I'm like, I actually do care. So I actually pay attention to what, oh, what's the, the through line of impact? So they actually just out of sight, out of mind their impact to usually developed, undeveloped countries and, um, and or poorer areas in the United States. And I, and I get frustrated with them because it feels like for the most part, they don't actually care. They pretend they pretend to care because everyone's supposed to pretend to care, and that's all that I, is. They feel the caring, but they. <laughs> this is a distinction that I that I I sometimes we. I, I don't know that everyone agrees with me on this distinction, but like you can feel caring, or empathy, but that's completely irrelevant. Without the action, so if what you're doing is is doesn't reckon like I could say, oh, I have a lot of empathy for the heroin addict, so I'm going to give him a whole bunch more heroin. It's like, well. That's not the empathetic thing to do. That's the dumb thing. That's the, I, that would be what I would do if I don't care about him. Like I, you need to think it through and then act on the feelings are just motivation. So a lot of people I think are like, well, I care. I feel this way. Therefore, but they don't, therefore I'm just going to take these off the shelf recommendations that are handed by experts about what we should do. Right. Which is like, all right, well, and then there's an assumption that if you disagree with those, then you don't care. Yeah. I mean, I've been called out as being someone who doesn't care about the environment all the time when I actually probably research more than the average person into the environment because I wanted to be a marine biologist. I like started to study for it very seriously. So like I still care and uh, I still like read studies and stuff. And it it does drive me crazy. And I think one of the things what they're falling for is two things. One a group of people who want to make money off of them using green labels. Uh, and it, that includes people who, who want money for solar farms from uh, and uh, wind farms for political subsidies, because by the way, wind farms are ridiculous when it comes to impact the environment versus their payoff in energy. And then two, uh, they're allowing companies and policymakers to put the onus on the individual for environmental impact as opposed to the bigger environmental impact from actual governments and corporations. And I'm sort of like, you're giving them 
you're giving them the the people with the most impact pass while also allowing them to try to take more control over your life and both of those things are extremely dangerous uh it doesn't help the environment and it doesn't help our individual rights uh and freedoms and that so to me i'm sort of like you're this is a trojan horse for you losing how control over your life and selling all of us down the river on in that front yeah Keith, I, we haven't heard from you. Can you jump in and let us know what you you thought about this book? Yes, um, I love the book uh, for for a bunch of reasons. Besides, you know what what you we've been all talking about the the just learning all these facts to counter arguments from this green stuff. Um, it's also it's like it's a philosophy book. It's like teaches philosophy, teaches how to argue. His his method is you know Thomas and Carter are both saying that. Like he presents the arguments of the other side. If you want to say the two sides, he doesn't start out even that he has a fixed agenda. He starts out saying, okay, here's, here's all the facts. Here's the different considerations. Um, he, he's the kind of person that if he wanted to debate, he could debate the environmentalist side better than any environmentalist I've ever talked to in my life. Like he could take their side because he's just, he understands the arguments that they're using. He knows they're wrong and he could say why they're wrong. Um, but I, I bet he could take the other side in an environmental debate and do pretty well. And that's key to understanding um, a, a debate of, you know, of something that's complicated is to be able to understand the other side's argument very well. Um, so I like that whole philosophy lesson. He, he goes into the uh, explains his method at the end. He talks about arguing to 100 rather than arguing to zero. Talks about how the oil companies are like arguing to zero. So their argument against the uh, the anti-impact group that are trying to shut down their industry is to say, well, yeah, we agree that CO2 is really bad and that oil is terrible and we got to stop using it. But we can't just stop right now because we still kind of need it you know, for this or that. Like they're not really arguing from the, the, the no. basic. They've lost so the moral high ground or they've, they've ceded the moral they, high ground. They ceded it. Yeah, they, they're agreeing. So in the in the end, they're agreeing um, The I kind of I, I concluded from this that, you know, when you think through the arguments of people that are really serious, if they're really, really serious, the anti impact people, they should commit suicide. Like like that's the that's only <laughs> outcome logical. So if they were rational and looking at their view, if they're serious, they should commit suicide. Like that's the only moral thing they can do. Um, so the fact that they haven't committed suicide means they don't believe what they're saying. Thanks. Well, I'm going to throw one other thing out, which I think is worse. Uh, first, <laughs> they can kill off all of the people in third world countries that they don't like. Uh, they can first they can be the last to commit suicide, which which seems to be the plan. Right. The the we're going to let the unempowered people remain unempowered um, and foist unusable solutions on them. Uh, that, that to me, that just really makes my blood boil. And by the way, if you, if you are at all concerned about large authoritarian regimes, he, he touches on this in the book, but I mean, this is something that my wife and I talk about all the time because she's native Chinese, the Belt and Road Initiative, people, there are entire villages in Africa who all speak Mandarin, who send videos of thanks back to China for like, thanks for building this infrastructure, helping us with the schools or do this, like, China doesn't give a crap about this stuff. China's like, yeah, fossil fuels. And and yeah, maybe sometimes they even go too far in terms of not giving 
giving a crap about the side effects of fossil fuels, but like they just don't care. And if you're in, if you're in an unempowered region and you're desperately wanting to lift your population and yourself and, and your family and everyone around you out of abject poverty, you want some of the things that we have, you want to be able to have access to incubators and medicine that needs to be refrigerated and, you know, cheap electricity and all that you want to be pulled out of the abject poverty. You want to stop burning dung in your house to cook on. Right. And you, you turn to the first world, you turn to the, the, the shining city on a hill and you say, how did you do it? And what we say back is, Oh, don't do it our way. It's really bad. Our way sucks. You wouldn't like it. What you would like is this very, uh, dilute form of intermittent power that really kind of sucks. It really isn't going to solve your problems. This is much more expensive. Why don't you do that instead? And meanwhile, China's like, you want some cheap coal? I, I'll build a coal plant for you. You, <laughs> you want some power? I'll do it. And it's like, sure, sure. I, you're going to, just from a geopolitical perspective, <laughs> this is like begging China to eat our lunch. <laughs> Both financially and, you know, in creating allies. <laughs> right. Right. I'm tempted to say that the that 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 this is a symptom of the decline of our civilization. Like mm -hmm. the fact that like are there there's a process in organisms, many organisms called apoptosis, which meet which is programmed cell death. Some organisms after they mate or when it's time for them to die, their cells just destruct. And I kind of wonder if we're not doing that and it's starting with our elites. <laughs> like this this stuff about culling our energy usage is just a way of our civilization to commit suicide. I mean, I think philosophically we would I think um, I don't want to speak for everyone here, but that's a general theme that I think a lot of us here would agree with. Like we are there's a suicide of of the West is a thing. Right. And we are we are we're undermining all of the things that gave us the life that we have now, which I think we all of us just take for granted. Right. I mean, Wait, there's a lot going on with taking things for granted um, in the, especially in empowered societies like our own, like they assume that it's going to be easy to power a hospital on solar or wind um, without any fossil fuel right. backup at all. And it's like, well, that's not just, that's not possible. It's impossible. Like that yeah. is not, it's, we're not there. And by the way, solar farms take up a lot of habitat. <laughs> You are clearing so much habitat for a solar farm to even come close to what one fossil fuel plant is going to give you. And, and it's not going to be as stable as that fossil fuel plant. And that's a serious issue. Now, I don't know how many of you have been next to a solar, a, a wind farm, like one fan blade. Those things are huge. They have them out in Kansas. And every once in a while on the highway, there'd be a truck in a truck in front that's an oversized load, then another semi truck with the blade, which was bigger than almost as big as three semi lengths, and then another truck that said oversized load behind it. Uh, so that's three big trucks just to move one fan blade, and the material yep. that fan blade makes up. And I cannot tell you how many times I saw them bringing one out because they had failed. One had needed replacement and it's worse for wind farms on the coast where there's so, there's so much more salt in the wind 
So, like, it's ridiculous how much material a wind blade, one wind blade takes up. And that's, that's material that could be used for a lot more than just something you're going to have to throw away at one point because it broke down. He goes through in the book how the, the oil industry, basically, fossil fuels subsidized that whole process. Because how were they moving the, the blade? Like, how did they build the blade? How are they moving it? Oil, right? They're using diesel trucks to get it there. Um, and the people that are looking at the, the energy use, they tend to look just at the electric use. They don't look at transportation. Uh, he brought up industrial heating. Um, look, look at a ship, you know, a cargo ship going across the ocean like you, you can't that's not going to do electric there's only only one other way well actually there's two other ways that mankind has ever done this through sales which is <laughs> i'm a sailor that's a very slow and very expensive way to get around um it's generally a uh, a quip in the sailing world to say like the slowest and most expensive way to travel there is is sailing so like if we had to sail stuff then oil basically coal and oil fossil fuels and nuclear. So really nuclear is the only option. Like that's what they use in submarines and aircraft carriers. Like that's an impressive thing. I've been on an aircraft carrier, I've been in a submarine there. Are, it's impressive what that little tiny power plant can do for 10 years. That's the only alternative I see. So I like how he broke down the, the alternate energy and got into how it's being subsidized. And I'm pro alternate totally pro alternate in the right situation. I just came back from two months going to Porkfest. We went in a camper, which has solar power charging. Um, and it, it, somebody that's never done that, that kind of opens up your mind. Try living for two months in a residence that's solar powered. Uh, it's, you gotta be very careful. Like you're not doing a lot of things and we're only talking about lights. Um, and we're pulling it around with yeah. a gas thing. So I, I liked having that argument. Um, and um, and it's not that I'm not in yeah. favor of it. I, and the, yep. the people, I just want to say one thing about like celebrating gas gasoline. Like you see a ship um, crossing an ocean, like you should celebrate that. That mankind is capable of moving a, a, a you know a cargo ship filled with containers across an ocean. Like that energy is is amazing. And that's why I picked my background. That happens to be my Harley Road King. Like I was thinking about it reading this book. Like a lot of vehicles, like totally cover up how they move around. Like, like you can't tell that much difference from an SUV, you know, from a Tesla. Like they make them quiet. The the Harley Davidson is exactly the opposite. The thing is a celebration of fossil fuels. Like it's it's like a work of art, and it's a beautiful machine. Which would have to go. And the, the engine is like, that is clearly gasoline powered fossil fuel vehicle. And that's like, and it's celebrated. They chrome it out. They, um, and some motorcycles, they cover everything with plastic. You can't even tell if it's electric or. So anyway, that's what I picked for my background. Like I'd like the solar panel on the trailer. That's awesome for camping. Um, I don't think I want to try to live in a solar powered house and have huge batteries or however you store the energy. And, um, well, and even that's not really feasible, right? I mean, and the the other thing, Keith, that I that I you touched on it, but I just want to really emphasize it for people because it was something I hadn't thought about a lot. We get caught up in the electricity debate 
Uh, we get caught up in like, oh, we can get rid of fossil fuels because solar and wind, all we need is better batteries and da 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 which, you know, the better batteries is a is a pipe dream as as it is, which he talks about. But um, even so, electricity is actually not even a majority of the, the, the energy we use. Like we use industrial heat is a huge thing, which you, you touched on. You can't make any of these solar things or anything without industrial heat um and mobility like you can't you can't drive around on solar um i mean you court sort of can with the tesla right but like not you can't ship there's no there's no it's there's nothing close resembling close to feasibility uh for shipping uh and mobility with these and the other category that's not energy but that does get impacted if you eliminate fossil fuel usage is just look around your room Everything's made of fossil. Every piece of plastic is is made of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. All of like I think he makes at one point he says basically everything in a hospital is made of fossil fuels. <laughs> like just about everything, like, almost everything is made of fossil fuels. Uh, it's it's ridiculous mm-hmm. to assume that you can go, you can get to. I mean, this net zero twenty fifty thing is you know <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous that you can. Oh, we're gonna get to. Net zero. We're going to not use any fossil fuels. We're going to not consume. We're going to produce zero carbon dioxide by 2050. It's it's uh, it really is like writing your. It's like writing Western civilization's name in the death note. <laughs> well, and you you bring up the plastics, but it's not just the plastics. It's also how every product got to your home, and right. the men, all the the power behind the manufacturing and bringing the manufacturing like the raw materials to the manufacturing site the fossil fuel use to get you everything you care about in your home is incredibly high and including the internet so to me i'm sort of like get over it it's part of it like (laughs) you can't completely eliminate it without completely destroying everything that you love in life so i and i'm not even saying i'm against alternative means of energy. I think we should be researching them just because research is how you like can improve them, but I don't think they should be pushed onto the public until they are actually ready. And they're not ready. They're at, they're not, they don't have the power. They don't have uh, the long-term storage and they don't have a way of getting to us well. So it's, it, with stability. So I'm not for them for everyone right now. It's not going to happen. And, and we're not well, going to go ahead. I, I was just going to say, like one th- fact that struck me was, and I think I think I'm not misquoting. He was, since the foundation of the NRC, there's been no new nuclear power plants built. Like so, like which was in the 70s. So we're we're not just foisting solar and wind on people. We are preventing the only real alternative that has so the three things just to remind people the three things that he talked about that fossil fuels have which are unique abundance concentration and it's stored energy so like solar is not is abundant kind of i mean during the day but not always it's not concentrated at all and it's not stored like it's really hard this is why solar and wind are really hard to do but guess what is all three of those things even better nuclear so 
naturally, what do the environmentalists oppose? Nuclear. <laughs> like it makes absolutely nuclear. no sense. It makes absolutely which no sense. The, which is the one green energy. You know, I, I tell people to drive around the Prius and Teslas in, in my area. We have a nuke plant 10 miles away. So like, yeah, your car is nuclear powered. It is actually zero emissions because your car is nuclear powered. A lot of times the people who drive electric cars also hate nuclear. And then a debate with them like, well, if you want zero emissions, do you think it's better to burn coal? Because otherwise your car is burning coal um, or, nu- or nuclear. Like those are the probably your two choices. Um, and, and yeah, the, the regulation, it's showing up in Europe now because they've really squashed nuclear power even, even worse than the U.S. And there's a little experiment going on in energy because of the sanctions, the U.S. and some of the Europeans that fought along with the U.S. government. But, you know, one of the big uh, trending hashtags on social media in Europe right now is firewood. Like they're having a problem getting oil. They're t- in Germany, they're turning off non-essential traffic lights at night to save electricity. You know, it's illegal in Spain to put your heat above your air conditioning below 80 degrees right now. Like, like there's going to be an experiment in this going on in the winter. It's this winter in Europe, unless they change the war. And I don't mean to get into the war, but like from an energy point of view, it's staring a lot of people in the face. Like, and, and the problem is they're not importing fossil fuels from Russia. That's what their problem is. It's it's exactly this thing. Well, Germany and shut yeah. down nuclear power plants and then fired up some coal plants. And it's like, you think that's better for CO2 emissions? Like, what <laughs> is the plan there? <laughs> well, they're, they're actually coming, backing down off of Mount Stupid when it comes to nuclear energy, both in Canada and in the EU. Uh, some of the green energy, so-called green energy subsidies are being approved for nuclear now. So I guess they learned their lesson. <laughs> Never being backed into a corner and going, oh, wait, we're not actually going to go live in caves and loincloths and and bang on rocks because manufacturing drums is too environmentally unfriendly. We're going to have to actually have something that makes electricity. And 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 I mean, a big like that is that these existential threats, the way to motivate people to do this is by convincing them it's an existential threat. But the failed predictions are really what is going to kill that. That's the Achilles heel here is that the predictions keep not coming up true. And you can see them doing damage control for this. Try this experiment. You can try this yourself. Anybody watching this, uh, any of you guys here, go to Google and just Google inconvenient truth predictions. And the top three results are ads about why you should believe in climate change that have nothing to do with it. Like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> behind the curtain. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I to to touch on something that you did that ties together what you were saying, Caleb, earlier about uh, them hating humanity, uh, the environmentalists hating humanity, and and the resistance to nuclear. Here's the Paul Elric quote, and this is in response to someone asking about the development of fusion, which is like even better than fission nuclear energy, and like this is what he says: developing fusion for human beings would be quote like giving a machine gun to an idiot child. And then Jeremy Rifkin, another designated environmental expert, says, quote, it's the worst thing that could happen to our planet. Amory Lovins was already on record saying, quote, it would be little short of disastrous for us to discover a source of clean, cheap, abundant energy because of what we might do with it. Like, that's the mentality. <laughs> like, this, it would be disastrous for us to discover utopia. Because of what we would do with it. Like, that's basically what she's saying. 
And it's it's so hypocritical when you hear that because you realize that the only reason they are able to sit and think about this and tell everybody is because of the thing awesome. they're yeah. fighting against. Like they're yeah. super wealthy elites, like you said, probably live in a city. That's just a guess. But yeah, they don't live out on a farm with their own chickens, right? That's not the kind of people that do this. You know, I wanted to we backtrack just a little bit. We were talking about um, – the electricity problem and um, solar power and all of that and being able to actually produce enough electricity through solar for the entire nation. You know, this is, you know, not even thinking about the rest of the world yet. Uh, he does mention something about Elon Musk saying it is possible by doing A, B, and C to power the whole United States with electricity. And while I, I lean more towards what Epstein is saying about how we aren't able to do it. It scares me anytime that Elon Musk says, Oh no, we can do a, because mm-hmm. then I'm going, <laughs> I don't know about that. And then he goes and he does it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always curious. I've never, I don't know if anyone here knows or even in the comments, what exactly it is that Elon Musk is planning or knows that maybe I don't know um, about about um, being able to utilize solar to power the United States. Well, I I'm, I'm I don't know specifically, but I will say Elon. Keep in mind, Elon's time horizon is much longer than most people's. So he's planning. He started a company with the intention of colonizing Mars. Now I don't think he realistically <laughs> will do that before he dies, right? Yeah. Um, okay. But he, he's he is when he thinks about humanity. He's thinking super long term. And I think he's my guess is that if you pushed him on that, because Alex did the math and the math on batteries was like, there's no way that what you said could possibly be true given today. I, my suspicion is Elon's like, yeah, but there's going to be a breakthrough. Like, of course, I'm relying on breakthrough. There's going to be a nonlinear breakthrough. That's how we're going to get to Mars. That's how we're going to like, that's how lots of things are going to happen. There's going to be, a, we just got to keep pushing in this direction and there will be a nonlinear breakthrough at some point And like, batteries will be you know you could imagine an atomic battery somehow like i you could imagine like i don't know you can imagine some you can imagine some pretty cool tech that's just not anything that we have today um a big part of what elon musk does is he throws money at research for some like if he sees a problem we, we don't have batteries that are there yet so he throws money at it like and tries to find good researchers to you know and scientists to push the envelope on that you know uh, on that science and that's a reasonable way of responding to an issue like that uh and yeah there is the element of genius that every once in a while someone is going to have a freaking breakthrough and you don't know it's not predictable you don't know when it's going to happen but you know you can increase the opportunity for genius to have a breakthrough by throwing money at research. Well, and, and using fossil fuels to give people free time. So there's more people <laughs> devoting mental energy to coming up with genius. Break. Otherwise, they're going to be busy collecting dung to burn in their huts. Yeah. Like for the longest time, I would say that a lot of people wouldn't think that coal, like removing cobalt from batteries was a possibility. But Elon Musk is pushing that because he doesn't he doesn't want to be involved in the cobalt cobalt mining in Africa. I like he he has his priorities and he knows how to push them and and, and how not to like undervalue other people to get it done. 
Like he's, he's all like, we're not there yet, but we can get there through research, which is the smarter way of handling things. Um, bad environmentalists push control on the population uh, as opposed to um, funding research and actual cleanup policies and stuff like that. Like actual people who actually care act. By act, they don't argue about whether or not climate change is real. They don't argue about whether or not we should or shouldn't have an impact. They go, oh, look, I saw this problem. I'm going to go try to solve it. That's what someone who actually cares about what's going on does. Everyone else is just arguing to argue and prove that they're right and take over other people's lives. That's not what Elon Musk is trying to do. And that's one of the reasons why I do appreciate the research and the, the values that he has on this front. Yeah, I like what you said about control. And the more I read about history and where these problems come from, when it's authoritarianism, tyranny, et cetera, et cetera, it's almost always, if not always, some people trying to control other people. And as we see how much that has really dissipated in this shining light that we call the United States, it seems like there's a contraction going on where it's constantly trying, trying to pull back and no, 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 we got to control this. And then, you know, we, we spread it out a little bit with our founding and then people are still going, no, 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 we got to control this. And what Caleb said earlier about Stalin and plucking the chicken, I, I've heard that story before that makes me, you know, think that maybe- He did that with know, humans, so- yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> they know that, you know, and at some level, whether it's conscious or not, um, the manner in which you control people, and especially if you, if you have some kind of ideology that makes you believe that you should be in control because the, because the future of humanity necessitates smart people like you being in control, then you're willing to make those sacrifices and crack a few eggs because your omelet is just around the corner. So every time I look at this stuff, that's what I, that's what I think. Um, these initiatives to create more green energy, I don't think they actually believe that we can really get to net zero or do any of these other things. I think that they do see a manner in which they can create a control mechanism and guide the world in the way that they believe it needs to be guided. Yeah. In I think, unfortunately, to, I think you're probably right. I, I um, think sorry, that go ahead, Caleb. You, you can synthesize both of those points because we were talking about the misanthropy and we were talking about self-loathing and we were talking about the authoritarianism, but all three of those kind of converge. It's all just narcissism. Because every narcissist on some level is self-loathing, uh, and that's what drives the superiority. And in some sense, I, I think it's what drives a lot of these environmentalists. Uh, Penti Linkola, who I mentioned earlier, the, the deep ecologist, said nobody has equal value, and some people simply have no value at all. And he's also in favor of reducing the populations. So saying, for example, that fusion power is putting a machine gun in the hands of an idiot child. By idiot child, they don't mean the human species. They mean everybody else who isn't as smart as I am. I mean, not him, not my, not yes. me. I would do great with it, but you guys can't be trusted. Yeah, it is. It's always that, right? It's it's always that. Um, if I was in charge, communism would work because I understand the manner in which, and I will not be corrupted. There's nobody behind me waiting to take power when I'm not looking. Yeah. 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 No, I, 
I think I think you're probably right about the the narcissism, uh, Caleb. And um, sometimes sometimes it's hard to tie to self loathing because it's so. I guess the self loathing is probably so buried that it's not obvious. But <laughs> um, it's probably it's probably all there. And I do I do wonder when I hear you know when I hear statements like that. I want to I want to defend something. Someone said there were two nuclear power plants built in Texas post 70s. I want to give Alex's quote exactly. Because it wasn't exact, I didn't give it exactly. It's as of 2021, since the advent of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in 1975, no nuclear, no new nuclear power plant in the U.S. has been conceived and completed. So my guess is they were conceived and started prior to the NRC, and then completed in after the 70s because it takes a while to build. Um, and I know that there are some that are being conce- have been conceived and were scheduled to come online at some point, but haven't. So I think we're still in the state of nothing has gone from conception to completion in the entire time of the NRC. Yeah, and I and saw, put a link uh, in chat about that. Right, his and I saw a comment that. as well about the about waste and Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. And I think this is a, a good reference to Michael Schellenberg, who does a deep dive into the actual um, results of what happened at those um, places in Fukushima, et cetera. And I was really surprised to find out how little damage, radiation, and death came about from those incidents. Um, And how even, I think at Fukushima, I think, I I can't remember what it was, but one of, it was probably Chernobyl where the amount of radiation that they still measure there is actually below the normal amount of radiation in parts of Colorado. So it's people have this idea where they think, Oh, radiation is bad. Well, radiation is just something that exists. It, we have to think about it in rel- relativity in relation to uh, certain levels that can be bad or good and how it affects um, populations, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of just saying, this is bad. We have to get rid of all of it. Well, and- the, the, the danger at Chernobyl was pretty bad, but it still didn't leak. They, and they were horribly incompetent. So people are incompetent. The worst one in the U S socialism was, did, was responsible for the worst. Let's just be on, let's be clear. <laughs> it was the, okay. it was leftist policies that were responsible for the big one. And I recall, you know, what Thomas said about the, the actual danger, like people, talk about the leak, like Three Mile Island, I remember a professor saying, um, and this was in the 70s, so let me back up one second. We were talking about this in the 70s. I started college in 78 as an undecided engineering major, and I was leaning towards nuclear, um, and I took Nuclear Engineering 101. My, my, I was, you know, introduction to nuclear, um, and at that time was when this whole thing was coming to a head, and after the first semester, I decided, like, I'm really fascinated by this technology, but this would be a dumb thing to get a degree in because it looks like they're not going to let any of the new permits go. Um, but I remember the professor say we, three mile Island, it just happened. Um, and I happened to live in near Philadelphia, which is that's West of Philly. The amount of radiation that someone that lived right at the fence to the, to the power plant and they never left home through the whole crisis is less than if you move to Denver for six months. Like, like it's yeah, worse to live in Denver. Don't, a lot of people <laughs> don't understand. 
<laughs> but that's just how radiation works and that's what the atmosphere does so yeah living living in denver is a tremendously dangerous thing relative to what these people say but a lot of them are writing about it from denver and i, <laughs> I think fine, you know <laughs> go ahead especially what thomas you and uh, you keith what you both said about radiation is spot on is what people don't realize is everything is radioactive right like your nipples are radioactive. <laughs> okay. Bananas are Especially radioactive. Especially Keith. <laughs> no, that's a separate story. I, I think if, I, if you get to your post, chest, you'll, you'll like get brain cancer. Well, <laughs> and that was the thing yeah. too, is that when Chernobyl happened, scientists were like, it's going to be irradiated for 35 years and didn't account for wind <laughs> moving the radiation around and dissipating it. Uh, and that's that's a huge issue. Is that like the the average you know person in the who doesn't know anything about science doesn't realize that everything is radioactive to a degree, and that certain there's a certain level when it's then bad for you. Radiation at certain levels is good for life. It makes life grow more. It makes it better. But it uh, like anything, too much of something is poisonous. Too much water can kill something. So this idea that, oh, this is this magic poison that everyone needs to be terrified of. And it's like, no, only at certain levels, like anything in the world. But uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot of ignorance. Yeah, he actually <laughs> it reminds me that more people die every year from air pollution, which could be tied to um, particles from burning coal, et cetera, et cetera than have ever died from any of the um, nuclear accidents. All of them combined. Epstein said, yeah. uh, all yeah. of them combined. Oh, Epstein says in the book- killed more people than nuclear. Wind what was that, Caleb? Wind has literally right. killed more people than right. nuclear energy. <laughs> so he said is hydro. in the book that nuke, of all the forms of energy ever invented by man for man's use, nuclear has killed and injured less people than all the rest. Like, yeah, individually, all the rest, <laughs> coal, oil. Yep. And he, he mentioned, like, if you want to go back to burning um, in the kitchen, said he said the uh, the biggest cause of death for women in the like from the 1800s and and back was l lung cancer was a huge problem because they're in the yeah. kitchen cooking on fire on wood fires. My ex-wife in Honduras did that. And the day I, from the day I met her till the day she died, she had a cough and had a really raspy voice and ended up dying of lung cancer because she's in Honduras outside cooking beautiful, tasty meals, but she's constantly yeah. inhaling smoke. And I don't think people realize how much of the world, I think he said 40% of the world still does that. Yeah, something like that. Can we, can we talk the world they say they want to go back to? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and they, they certainly, um, uh, they certainly make that world seem idyllic, right? We've talked about that before, of like the the, the noble savage kind of thing. Like, oh, look yeah. how look how they are in harmony with nature. <coughs> look, oh, they're in harmony. Like that's yeah. what we need, right? Um, I I want a couple things struck me that I didn't realize. I knew the arguments. So whenever I've heard the CO two is a greenhouse gas thing, uh, and it's going to warm the planet. My immediate reaction has always been just just not even knowing, not only knowing any information in the book. It was just 
well, that seems like it's good for a really large percentage of the planet, which is fucking cold. Like, I mean, like, that's probably good, right? <laughs> like a few degrees warmer, that, that you know, makes a lot more arable land and livable places. Like, you know, that that's okay. Um, but, and, and we know that CO2 is plant food and there has been a greening. But some things that, that I didn't realize is that the earth is cooler now and has way less CO2 than it has historically. We're actually at a low point for both our temperature, our average temperature, and our carbon dioxide in the atmosphere content. Um, and uh, and he and he also mentioned that there have been times, which I didn't realize in Earth's history, where there were no ice caps. Like everything was like I didn't realize that that was true. Um, and it kind of sounds like a tropical paradise. <laughs> well, when he goes over the science of CO2 levels during uh, when dinosaurs were around uh, to, to feed them the amount of plants they needed to be the size they were, something like 300 to 400 parts per million of CO2 yep. in the air versus what we're at, which is like, what, 100 to 120 parts per million? It's like... That is a dramatic difference. And they keep going on about how we're killing the planet. And it's like, this has nothing to do with the planet and everything to do with us. Like, we can't survive probably uh, beyond a certain level of CO2 because we're just not acclimated to that. Like, may, like I don't know what the level is. It might even be up to 400 parts per million. But <laughs> it's clear that the planet can survive 400 parts per million of CO2. That's not the issue. It's already oh, it's, in, it's in the upper atmosphere that. too. I don't think I think we could survive because animals survived during that time too. Like I, yeah, I don't think I, I think we could hit 6,000 and which is one of the numbers he said was the high. I don't think that would kill us. I think it would be fine. I just I just imagine the forest moon of Endor. I'd be like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. It does seem like it would be like Endor. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to look up. I can't find that spot in the book, Alex, where there's a picture of the guy with the trees uh, at the different CO2 levels. Do you remember that? No. Oh, here it is. Here it is. I found it. It's on page 298. <laughs> so here's this picture. It's hard to see for people, maybe. Uh, it's not yeah, we can't see it. Uh, we that. can't really see it. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> But basically, there's a guy, uh, Craig Idso, Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change. And he's got uh, a small plant, and he's holding up a sign that is, this is AMB, which is like what we what we have now, parts per million. Uh, what, he's got a plant where 150, which is taller. He's got a plant that he grew in 300 parts per million, which is taller. And a plant that he grew in 450 parts per million, which is even taller. So he's like, hey, this is great. Um, <laughs> the idea that that CO2 is – there may be some negative side effects to do. And, there, and absolutely, there's probably some negative side effects in small parts of the, in some parts of the world from a warming. But um, the idea that, like, it's all negative and there's no positive side – there's no upside to a slightly warmer globe on average – uh, I think is something that isn't really talked about at all, um, and not nor is the fact that most of the warming happens in colder places and at night. So it's it's not that the equator is getting all the warming and we're getting, like that's getting worse. It's that the places that are naturally colder and where 
and and at night are it's there's those are the places that are warming more which is like oh well, that's which that was a less risk. right i'm sorry that was a thomas Sowell moment for me every once in a while <laughs> thomas Sowell writes something that makes me completely change my thinking and when alex said not Alex, but Epstein said <laughs> <laughs> said that the warming itself doesn't necessarily spread evenly. And I kept thinking, it's not like peanut butter where everything is spread evenly across the globe. You know, it happens differently in different places. They're like, yeah, why? Because I, I had automatically assumed the globe changes temperatures evenly. I, I didn't even think articulate it. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. It's likely not going to do exactly the same thing in every different part. There's mountains, there's elevations, there's seas, there's wind. So that was a, a really great point that he made that even if I we thought won the same magnetosphere where like the polar regions are going to get hit yeah. more, which is like, good. <laughs> they can stand to be a little warmer. We actually have to worry when it comes to impact more about mini climate impact, not global impact. Like the idea that you could desalinate an entire, you know, area, that's a problem. So, you know, like things like right. that, not necessarily this global impact that they keep pushing on us, which is bullshit. It's the parts where it's like, well, we completely drained this lake in Russia and now, you know, <laughs> we have an acid rain problem and a new desert. Like that's an issue. Right. It doesn't impact us here. To say nothing of the heat island effect, and one reason why it's scorching in the cities that so many of these people live in is because it's a giant lake of concrete. Yeah. It, it, it right. sucks up sunlight and then radiates it at night. That's why it's so hot in the city you live in. Yep. Yeah. And 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 the you know, just to deal with the issues that you're talking about, Alex, it's like, well, if we want to deal with localized problems that are going to crop up, right? There are going to be Absolutely. And and some of them are attributable to, to man, but it's not even clear that they're always attributed. Like the climate does change and has changed. So those kind of things are going to crop up regardless. Uh, maybe they'll crop up more so because of us. Fine. But to deal with them, what do we desperately need? Cheap power. Like <laughs> The only way we can deal with them is like we need fossil fuels to deal with this problem. Because, like, think about this. If instead of completely draining that lake, they had shipped water from a place where water was more abundant to far to irrigate that farmland, then they wouldn't have completely drained that lake and created a new desert. Like, the so, and that would be solved by fossil fuels. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There, there was some, um, I guess this is a tangent, but, uh, this reminds me of a book that so actually Alex's roommate gave to me years ago, and I gave I lent I gave it back to him, uh, and I can never find it again, and I don't remember the name. I think it was, I think it was something like when engineers dream or something like I don't know, but it was from 60, 70 years ago. It was you know old. <laughs> it was an older book, um, but one of the things that I found fascinating in it was it, it was. Um, it was operating off of the human flourishing premise without explicitly realizing it or say it was just like, well, that's what we, that's how we think. Right. And so the, the projects that they were proposing in this book were these huge projects that would benefit mankind. Some of them might turned out to not have been a good idea or whatever, but like th there was no 
oh no, how are we going to impact the environment? There was no, like one of the projects I remember was uh, flooding the Sahara project. And it was like, well, how could we realistically flood the entire Sahara desert to like, this is, these are the benefits of it. And what if we terraformed the desert and blah, blah, blah. It was like, and there was that kind of stuff. I think there was some geothermal energy stuff, but it was all these really huge, interesting projects that were um, motivated by this desire to make life for humans better um, with without really worrying about, well, the desert is a fragile ecosystem and we can't, do, 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 we wouldn't want to dam up the Nile or whatever. Like, <laughs> there, there, was no, there was no concern about that at all. It was just... Hey, could we do this? Because I think it would be great for people. Um, and it was really, it was a really fun book to read. I'll have to find it again. But <laughs> I don't think scientists should be stopping themselves from having thought experiments like that because someone might get their panties in a twist over our loss of environment. Because here's the thing that I get, I, I find it very disingenuous to say we need to switch off fossil fuels because of the environment. And one way to do that is to completely clear this entire habitat and put solar farms down. And the same thing with we, we need to clear we need we need to clear this entire forest, this untouched forest and hills to put down farming for vegetable vegetables and soy so that people stop eating meat, which was farmed in this much smaller area. I'm like, I'm like you, and and also included more habitat variation. I'm like, uh, you you clearly don't know what you're talking about if you're like not balancing it that way at all. Like, there are definite detractors for a lot of the environmental moves to the environment that environmentalists want, and they just pretend that they don't exist or they're less. Right. Horrible. And I'm sorry, but habitat variation is more important than, uh, you know, CO2 levels because habitat variation, like not having it means that you have way less species to rely on each other, which means there's a higher chance of extinction of species. So, sure. and they don't seem to get that. And it kind of drives me nuts. Well, it, it reminds me of that example where he gave where they did the exact opposite. I forget who it was and what it was somewhere off the coast of Canada where that guy dumped a bunch of iron oh. sulfate or something into the ocean. And I looked up and I read a little bit more about this. Um, and what he did was create a whole bed of, I think it was plankton. Sorry, I'm not a marine biologist, Alex, but <laughs> a bunch of plankton and all the salmon came back and these um, native tribes were able to fish again. And it's like, yay. And these environmentalists were like, no, you affected the natural environment and who knows what's going to happen, A, B, and C. And that was one of those um really brazen examples of what their ideology and what their fundamental underlying um, fundamental um, concepts about the earth were. It's not that you should do good because we're, we're going to get mad if you clear land of um, animals. We're also going to get mad if you create more land for animals it's because your impact, regardless of what direction you're going, if it's based on human activity, is immoral and i thought that was a great way to see it from both sides and they made their position clear in that example that they actually don't want salmon to flourish they don't want plankton to flourish and they definitely don't want humans to flourish yeah 
Yeah. Like they want the ocean to be whatever it happens to be today or something like right. There's a well, and here's the thing is that there's a species of jellyfish in the ocean right now that um, for the last several decades has been spreading throughout the all the oceans because once it reaches a certain age, it goes back to its larva stage and then grows up again and just keeps doing that. So there it doesn't actually die of old age, which for the longest time no one thought was possible in a, in a species. Uh, so that means it's breeding and not dying from old age it will only die from predators uh and or or poison something like that and it's everywhere it has more impact than you could imagine because it's going into smaller ecosystems within the ocean that it hadn't been in before and it and like most people don't know about this most people don't care but it's another one of those things where it's like, look, it's an animal having an impact that it has nothing to do with us. We didn't create this. We didn't make it flourish. It's just there. And, and this is how it exists. And it's having an impact. And they, they act like our impact is evil and animals impact is good. And it's like animals and plants, they do the same thing we do. They flourish and flourish and flourish and flourish. And if nothing, there's no checks on them, they will take over, you know? And this idea that that's not, oh, that's not something nature does. Nature has a balance. And it's like, it's balances that it will imbalance and lots of things will die. And then it'll rebalance after that. That's what happens. And we're part of that. And again, they just like to ignore that. Yeah, well, the deer population here, if you don't hunt enough deer, they eat all of the um brush and all the plants and then a season or two later because they keep growing and growing there's no food and then all of the deer die so <laughs> that happens all the time so when they issue hunting permits um, they have to take into consideration that they are actually conserving deer by allowing us to go out and kill them yeah we're we're deer's predator now uh, in North America, we're the ones that make sure that they don't get a population level that is dangerous to the, their entire species. Uh, and I've known a lot of environmentalists who hate hunting, and I'm like, we are preventing deer from going extinct by making sure they don't eat everything and you know ruin their food source. But they don't like that idea that we're being responsible. I, I don't know. It's really like messed up the way that they think because it's not actually logical there's nothing logical going on there can i tell a quick story about being logical <laughs> <laughs> sure so i saw really real i try to be as quick as i can but if you don't know howie mandel he's an incredible germaphobe i was in a situation where i was in a around a show and they said if you talk to Howie make sure you don't try to shake his hand he will not shake your hand that'll be really awkward everyone knows him everyone treats him like this um, he's at a rib joint and he goes next door to see Adam Carolla because he saw Adam's name on the sign um, from that rib joint he brings a box of popcorn because they serve popcorn in the way that some places serve peanuts and he Howie Mandel a germaphobe puts popcorn on the table says hey guys how you doing I saw you next door let's have a chat he puts his hand into the popcorn box and starts eating it Adam Carolla and all the other comedians are doing it and the Adam Carolla says to him hey you know what I thought you were a germaphobe but here you are sharing uh, popcorn with us we all have our hands in it I don't get it and Howie Mandel looks at me and says 
oh, you don't get it. I'm fucking nuts. <laughs> and I loved that because it was like, no, 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 there's no logic here. I'm just nuts. And this is, this is what I do. And now mm. when I see people and I try to think, well, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Gotta be. Sometimes they're just fucking nuts. And I think a lot of it, this is, this is what we're, we're always trying to figure out why they're doing it. And some of these people are just fucking nuts wearing gloves and masks uh, still to this day in the store, which don't make any sense. They're just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I still see just in the Bay area. I still see people by themselves outside a wearing a mask. It's like you are, okay. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, yeah. I, the other thing that I, that, that he points out in the book is that a lot of times with, with stuff like wind, um, wind particularly, but maybe also solar, even these green quote, quote, green options that are, that are being pushed. The, a lot of times the local populations don't like the impact. I mean, we have California's got, we've ruined a lot of our countryside with ugly windmills and crap, and I'm sure it's causing problems. And like, it's just, you know, it's all, and we had blackouts. Uh, so yay. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of they they push back, and so a lot of times these things don't even get built, um, and the result is less access to power generally. And I, they don't the people pushing this just don't care. They just don't care. It's not that they want cheap power, and he he makes this point several times. Like, it's not it's not really that they want to replace fossil fuels. It's that they want you to use less energy. They want you to have a, they want you to stop existing. They want you to have a, a smaller impact. And, uh, that is, that's the fundamental anti-human component to this. And, but I don't think most people are the Howie Mandel crazy. Like, I think, I think there's, I think a lot of people just accept this stuff and don't think about it. They accept you know, they accept these premises and they think, well, to be a good, like he, he also brings up in the book, a human value. So, all right, wait, I'll back up. I've said this before. Value implies a valuer and, and a purpose. Right. And we, we throw these words around like, Oh, like what one of the environmentalists that I think Caleb quoted earlier was like, I value that like, this is more valuable than that. This is more valuable than a billion people or whatever it was. He was, he was saying, and well, there is no intrinsic value. There's no such thing as intrinsic value. Uh, value is for, like, a person does the valuing, and it's for a purpose. So to us, like, when he says, oh, I, this animal or this species diversity is more important to me, to, to, is, is more valuable than a billion people, what he means is to him. It's more important to him. Mm -hmm. Um and we and we act like we can say uh, you can say the word value like it's intrinsic, but it's not. So the point Alex brings up also is like people a lot of times say, well, what do you want? You just want like an urban jungle. You don't want don't you like going hiking? Don't you like appreciating nature? Don't you like, you know, the, the beautiful outdoors? Don't we need to preserve it? And Alex's point is like, yes, but that's a value to us. Like you're not alone. Most people like to go do that. That is worth preserving because we want to enjoy it. Like that's what makes it worth preserving. And, and, and that's, that's a rational consideration for any uh, decisions you make with respect to, to energy is like, well, 
does it impact these things? Like, can we preserve the things that we want to preserve for our own use? Um, and I think a lot of people assume that if you're, if you go down this human flourishing, uh, argument that you're, you're going to end up not giving a crap at all about preserving natural beauty, but that's not the case because it is a value to humans, to many of us. Well, there's so much industry involved in going out in nature. How many companies and how much money is involved in hiking, fishing, you know, uh, camping? There's there's how many companies rely on us going out in nature? It's insane. So my father-in-law is leading one of those trips to Canada right now for people who want to go see nature and take pictures. Yeah, exactly. Like it's huge. Wait, is it is it a fossil fueled transportation device? Yes, and it is actually the cameras themselves are made of fossil fuels. Excellent. <laughs> Sorry, well, Alex, I is, didn't interrupt you. you were, no, it's you were fine. It's, it, there is a lot going on here on hierarchy of values. Like, we're like, I'd say that like freedom of individual choice to me is top, followed by, um, you know, life preservation for human beings and then life preservation for the environment and 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 life preservation for human beings includes uh production of food and um stuff for medical advancements and stuff like that because like here's the thing if we all lived in caves i'd be dead (laughs) because i have too many medical conditions to survive the kind of in nature life that they would want us to have And I think a lot of people like me also would be dead because the more medical advancement and sanitation advancement we've had, uh, the more people we've we've been able to extend their lives with the conditions they have. And they don't care about that. Uh, And the book brings up the whole idea of this infant who needs to be on, you know, in an incubator because it's a preemie, but it can't because we don't, they don't have the power to power the incubator. And that's the kind of thing that they're totally disregarding. Their, their hierarchy is in, inverted value-wise from what I just mm-hmm. said mine is. Um, individual choice is bottom. They don't give a crap. Uh, preservation of life, meh, some, some people maybe. And then it's the environment. Schwab and his, they need life, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and I think a point that he makes also, which I appreciate is that, he he uses the term our environment or our world and not the environment in the world because it this is real because from a human perspective it's like well this is it's our environment that matters right guys I kind of feel like that that Star Wars meme where it's like it's our environment that matters right right <laughs> like and like the environment else would be like uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> like it's not our environment that matters and I I sometimes wonder let's say Elon Musk gets his dream. And he's, he gets people to Mars and knowing Elon, well, he's already talked about this. How could we terraform Mars to make it habitable for humans? I, I expect the same environmentalists to oppose terraforming Mars, even though there's no life on Mars that we're aware of at all. But we'll be impacting something. It's humans impacting and you can't impact the pristine, harshly, unlivable environment of mars because everything humans do is bad and and i know that's kind of extreme but i i'm pretty sure they would oppose it 
I don't know. I, I haven't. Would, seen I would love what to hear they someone say ask them that a question like that. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I don't know if anyone's asked them, but if they have, I would expect them to say, "Well, no, we can't." Right. Yeah, it's a different ecosystem. Yes. <laughs> or With system. No I don't know if there's thing. any eco. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No ecology. It's a different. It's a. It's a different. Nature's in balance there in a different way. Well, and I think that word choice that you just said, ecology, like there's a difference between environmentalism and ecology. Like people who folk, who use that word environment, environmentalism, and, you know, they're, those are the people who don't actually know anything about ecology and uh, spout all this crap about anti-human impact and all this, you know, BS. And that's why, like, when I've, I've noticed a severe difference in rhetoric and values between someone who uses environmentalism and someone who talks about ecology, because ecology is not like global it, and it usually is focused on the subclime and, you know, specific areas that are because they do have bleed out into other areas, but most set, like they're, they're pretty big. But they have a pretty cyclical environment, you know, a cyclical ecology that is not highly impacted by the rest of the world. Um, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people who talk about environment, environmentalism either value that or know about it. Well, and there's this assumption that if anything changes, that's bad, right? Which is like, <laughs> I don't know if you paid attention to the history of the world, but... This isn't the way they things were five million years ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like things, things do indeed change, uh, and and that's not bad just because humans precipitate that change. It was funny. I was watching a, an episode of Love, Death, and Robots, and in it, the ro- every all the humans are dead, and these robots are on a tour of like city sites that humans used to be involved in and they talk about how oh we destroyed our environment and i'm like looking around and while there are buildings and they're all broken up everything is covered in green and then and i'm like oh i'm just rolling my eyes at this message they decided to throw in there and then they say oh no wait it's because cat they gave cats thumbs and cats took over and i was like okay that's a much better believable (laughs) (laughs) that would destroy that indeed would destroy the environment i believe giving cats Uh it would kill us all (laughs) yeah yeah um any any there's any other like i don't know interesting facts or tidbits or, or things that you guys think people should be aware of with respect to this this book stuff that struck you guys I'll, I'll bring up one other thing we haven't mentioned that um, there's also an economics lesson in this. And he goes into the uh, private property argument. Basically, I, I interpret it as an Austrian economics lesson all tied in with this. It's like another thing you get out of this book. And he explains how the 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 mining, fossil fuel, like one of the things that's different in the United States compared to most other places is that you can actually own the property underneath where you live where most places the government owns it and that causes even more problems. And generally as yep. anybody's watched my show, like if the government gets involved, it makes it worse. Um, <laughs> so not having like having property rights is key and having the right to keep what you create from your property is key. 
so what really happened in the last 200 years in the United States with this whole fossil fuel thing is is really unleashing that whole thing. And it's got to be based on property rights. If you if you can't yeah. own what you can't keep at least some of what you earn. And if you can't own the thing that you're inventing, it, it won't work. So it's a philosophy book. It's an economics book. It, it pre teaches you how to present arguments. Uh, and also you learn a lot about the whole energy and transportation. So that's yeah. one thing I wanted to mention. Yeah. You guys it makes me think of like um, that. Yeah, Venezuela. That like um, super, super oil rich government took over biggest, and biggest oil producer in the world. They have, yeah. they have more than Saudi Arabia, more than Kuwait. And what happened? Yeah. The government took over the, the oil industry. And, yeah. you know, 10 years later, the average Venezuelan lost 25 pounds. On well, and like one issue that and a lot of environmentalists are actually communists as well. And they, for some reason, think that communism will be better for the environment. And it's like, well, you don't have innovation, which means you won't have any kind of progress in the way of like Elon Musk pushing the envelope in research and on in, you know, batteries and stuff like that. Uh, but not only that, we have history to show us that they weren't any better. They still industrialized. They still, they, in fact, no one could even tell them that we don't like what you're doing to the environment around us. So to me, I'm sort of like, I don't think that that's a really good response. I do think property rights, you know, individual property rights would have a better, um, have a better record of protecting the environment than state owned property ever has. Um, and I know that's like, I, I don't know. I just feel like they're being really silly of equating those two. It's like, it's again, it's ideology over logic. They seem to go hand in hand, though, the socialist communist view and the hardcore environmentalists. And I've always considered myself an environmentalist, but that doesn't mean I don't want to burn oil for certain <laughs> things. Like the, the, you know, the environmentalism, like the California example, I think he talks about it in this book, but uh, the wildfires in California that are primarily caused because they're not allowing the forest to be taken care of. They want low impact. Um, and in the end, the whole thing backfires on them. I don't know if they figured it out, but they're actually Back causing fire. worse air pollution <laughs> and carbon. Yeah, if you want to cause like huge particulate emissions and CO2, let the whole forest burn. Well, and that's the other thing is that California has very little blades to stand on when it comes to environmentalism and their impact. Because I'm sorry, but they have so much in the way of almond farming when it comes in where their water goes in that regard. We've turned a desert into like farmland and pretended that it's like, I, I don't know how we get away with pretending that's not impactful. It's huge. And the amount of water they have to use, because it's like, you could, I don't know that you could choose a, an agricultural thing that required more water than almond farming. And it, it and they have In a so desert. much. I, yeah. I honestly think that people have a problem with, don't have a problem with it because deserts aren't pretty. <laughs> I think they're gorgeous, <laughs> but reason. okay. Oh, that, maybe, maybe they don't <laughs> care about Mars, Caleb. Maybe they're like, yeah, it's kind of ugly. So <laughs> if you need to nuke it, go ahead, Elon. <laughs> which i think was his plan right he wanted to, to he he wanted to nuke parts of mars at the poles to create an atmosphere 
Um, that was I think that was part of his. <laughs> Do it. Go oh, ahead. Man. He is an out of the box kind of thinker. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, like you said, somebody mentioned Elon. Like, well, if Elon says it, maybe we should be thinking about it. At least listen yeah. to him. Yeah, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, he said, I, I'm, I'll, I'll at least pay attention if he says it. Yeah, I mean, I, some, he's a weird one because he's also of, in. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say he's gonna say the he's kind of guy that look in, at the or, orbiting the, you know, or I'm gonna launch stuff into orbit. Like, how many people would think? Well, I think I'll compete with NASA. Oh, and I'm going to do it for a tenth the cost. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> but then he did. Yeah. Yeah, Go and ahead. that was just a stepping stone to we need to colonize Mars. I mean, I think, I mean, the thing with Elon is he is, I don't want to attribute any dishonesty to him because I don't know him personally, really, but uh, he also is running a company that relies on government's pushing electric vehicles and subsidies and relies on the entire narrative of this mm -hmm. being something that's in the zeitgeist and that people buy hook, line and sinker. So, um, you know, I used to joke that if I, I like Teslas, I think they're cool. And if my wife kind of wants one, we don't have a Tesla, but like my wife kind of wants one. And I've been joking, like we should get a license plate that says coal car. <laughs> uh, because like that's, kind of what it is i mean maybe not here in california it's an intermittent wind car but um <laughs> you know it's not i don't i so i'm not sure how objective he is on this particular issue because if he went out and said let's imagine that he reads alex's books agrees with alex's books and he what's he going to do he's going to go out and say yes alex is right you shouldn't be subsidizing any of this but since you guys are idiots uh <laughs> And I would love to increase, like, battery technology is cool, and I need this technology for other things because battery technology applies to satellites and space and everything else. Uh, you know, let's just keep going. But Alex <laughs> is right. Like, he, he can't say that, right? <laughs> I don't think. Well, most, I'd say that the, the there's a why people who, who buy electric cars tell themselves that it's about the environment when it's really about gas prices, prestige, and not having CO2 emissions around them. It's all it's very cool. The Tesla's just a cool car to drive and sit in. It's prestige and it's it's a it's a gadget. Mm -hmm. My wife my wife wants a Tesla because she is the the like the biggest gadget freak I know who wants to buy every new gadget <laughs> thing. And like that's the Tesla's just a big gadget. That's what it is. I mean, I, I I've always said that it's it has nothing to do with your impact. Like they're they're I don't think that the individual's choices have much of an impact on global environment i'd say that for the most part in the way in which individuals could change things is by petitioning companies and policy but not that anyone is listening to us at this moment because they are all working on creating green products to uh you know sell and and they're mostly marketing lies uh, and that includes yeah. a lot of the stuff about straws, like <laughs> like oh, the anti-straw movement. That I we find don't that have any straws in the Bay Area anymore. If, if we drive, like when we were on a road trip recently, one of the first things my daughter noticed was like we stopped in like Reno or something as our first stop. And she was like, oh, plastic straws. <laughs> Like they're not going to disintegrate when I drink my. I'm like, yeah. It's a, I mean, I'm literally like Starbucks was selling 
paper, like cardboard straws in a plastic wrapped thing. And I was like, yeah, that's so much better. Like with a cardboard backing. And I was like, yeah, sure. That's, that's, that's less of an impact if you lie to yourself. I know. (laughs) And it, and literally it has less, like they keep saying that, Oh, you need to make the right choices as an individual. And it's like, I, I read this one, 70% of the ocean trash was from commercial fishing nets. So it has little to do with whether or not we're using straws. And if <laughs> you throw your straw in the garbage and you're in a, any kind of remotely competent area, that doesn't end up in the ocean. It ends up in the landfill. That doesn't, like, yes, don't stru- don't throw your straw in the sewer don't throw it in the ocean, but it, well, it doesn't impact well, then, aquatic life if you throw it in the garbage. Well, and then a lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of the plastic recyclables that they've been doing, the, you would throw your recyclables in the, you know, in the recyclable. They would go to a recycling plant that would then ship it to China, and China would use it. And now China is just throwing all that in the in the water. So so it's actually better at this point. Oh, interesting. To probably throw your plastics in the trash so that they could go to a landfill. Like you, I mean, that is. I mean, it's not one hundred percent, but a lot of recycling centers just send their stuff to China. So it's and they don't. Care. How do they get away with that if that's their? I, I mean, they, I assume someone's paying them to recycle. How is it like? Like it's the same way. We lost in, it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. There, if, well, China was paying them, or like some, there was some subsidies going on from the government as well over a lot of recycling. Most recycling was being subsidized by the state. Um, sure. So, and but then being sold to China for reuse, but now China doesn't want it anymore. Um, so that so they, it was a big profit, you know program they were getting money from the state and then they were getting money from china but now china doesn't want anymore but the state is still subsidizing a lot of recycling so it's it's kind of in the it's kind of funny because like a lot of people do the same thing with clothing they like they they're like oh i don't want to wear these clothes anymore so i'm going to donate it to this place that says they're going to give it to people in africa and then those people who take it to africa then charge like something like seven fifty for a pair of jeans that they got for free. And that's seven fifty in American dollars. So they're making a shit ton of money too. So yeah. you gotta watch out for that kind of stuff. Charities and and like green stuff are kind of they're all a lot of them are just a, a huge way of making profit and looking yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll just I'll just throw in out two things that I before we wrap up here, I'll throw out two things that I didn't realize. Um, one I had heard of, uh, and that is that the greenhouse gas saturation of the atmosphere causes diminishing um, uh, diminishing returns on increased CO2. So adding another molecule, it's, it's logarithmic. So adding another molecule of CO2 to the atmosphere uh, increases the temperature less than the previous molecule did and the next one increases it less than that um and so that's something that you don't hear about because you hear about this like it's you assume that it's linear or actually i think the 
the implication is that it's actually exponential. Like, oh my God, it's gets this runaway. Ah, the Earth's gonna catch on fire and And actually, there's a there's a saturation level, and and that makes sense when you realize what's happening in the greenhouse gas. That like it's it's uh, absorbing reflected uh, infrared energy from the Earth, and there's only so much the Earth's gonna reflect. So eventually, it's like, well, you know, like there's only so much it can absorb because there's only so much that gets reflected. Um, it's inversely exponential. <laughs> yeah, I can only put on so many blankets before all of my heat is trapped and I'm not going to suddenly catch on fire. Yeah, yeah. The analogy he uses up, is like, like sunglasses, right? Like color. you put on the first one, it's like, okay. And the second one, like eventually it doesn't matter how many sunglasses. You can't get blacker than black. Like there's no it, it, it approaches an asymptote. And it makes sense because yeah. the earth is stable. I mean, you look at you know Al Gore and and that kind of thing. It's like the sky's falling, it's a runaway. New York City's supposed to be 20 feet underwater by now, according to his book. But it doesn't make any sense because the earth's been around for four and a half billion years or so. It's like it's stable in all sorts of different ways. So if you perturb something, yeah. it's probably something else happens. More plants grow, like I, you know, in this particular one, I don't know, but it, it doesn't make sense that it would run away. If it did, then Earth would be 150 degrees average right now, or something, right? Right, because there's certainly there, been there bigger is, impacts than us. <laughs> volcano right, like, erupting right well i mean alex points out like hey there's a like a 90 kilometer wide dent in the earth from an asteroid like that was that had an impact so like that like, like, you know, yeah lowered the temperature um, of the earth for years and from the yeah particles in the upper atmosphere and and yeah. then it recovers the other, it, it returns yeah. the other one that i didn't realize was um did you guys realize the decline in climate deaths? I didn't realize there's been like a 98% decline in climate deaths. So, And I didn't realize that most climate deaths are from the cold, which is like, oh, no, global warming. People are going to die. It's like actually most people die from cold. And there's and because of fossil fuels, like climate deaths have decreased by like 98% in the last whatever it is. Well, that's years. So, one of the most perplexing things that I've seen recently is the suggestion, the recurring suggestion in several media that we should blot the sun out to prevent global warming. And I'm thinking... <laughs> it's like... Is, wait, that, was, that kind was of like saying... M. Burns suggests that? Who? Never mind. It was a, Mr. Burns? M. Burns. Monty Burns. Never mind. It was his. Well, it, it's just... It's like cutting someone's head off because they have brain cancer. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it reaches such a fanatical level that you're willing to do anything to stop from warming, including destroying the world. Like, right. right. It's almost like a religion. It is very much like a religion, a, a very bad religion, because Christianity, as much as I'm not a Christian and, and don't appreciate it, uh, it's been around for 2000 years and they haven't yet proposed destroying civilization outright. <laughs> Um, but environmentalism, it just took a few decades and they're like, Hey, how about we kill everyone? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'll give, um, I'm going to, I want to ask before we end, sorry, I keep saying before we end, but I want to, there's one, uh, question from, from a chat person that I don't know anything about. I'm just going to put it up on screen. Aloise, the viewer, says, Unsafe Space, you guys heard about the lantern flies sweeping the East Coast. Anyone got any solutions for it? What are good trees to replace the tree of heaven with only solutions so far? I have no idea what she's talking about. 
I've anyone seen, else? Yeah, I, I live in Northeast Pennsylvania, and I've seen um, billboards where it'll, as I'm driving north in the New York direction, it'll say um, something like, um, are you bringing anyone with you? Are you sure? And it's got a picture of this um, thing that looks kind of like a butterfly. It's like a yellow with spotted um, some spots on it. So it does look like there is a reality around some kind of creature going around and um, destroying some plants. And that, that's kind of normal around here. Like my neighbor's got a bunch of beetles eating up a lot of the things in her garden, but I don't have any um, sometimes. So it might be something that's going around eating a lot of trees. Uh, we've had that here in, in PA with some other type of tree that's essentially almost all dead now. Um, but it seems like every once in a while something like this happens um, or the bees disappear or something like that where everyone says, oh, wow, we really have to focus on this. And like I think Alex said earlier, you know, one thing happens and then or Carter was saying, but then something else grows in its place because now all these trees are dead, but there's other trees that grow up. So, you know, I don't know how big of an actual catastrophe it is outside of maintaining the way that things have been for the past. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think a big of part of it. I don't know. Is if it's sweeping the U.S., um, I would think we would have heard of it. Well, East Coast, I just looked it East up and Coast, saw a picture of it. Well, I just got back from going to Porkfest in New Hampshire from Florida. So I drove every state between Florida and New Hampshire up the coast. We came back down through western Pennsylvania, Tennessee, West Virginia, Kentucky, uh, Georgia. I never seen one of these. And I was camping the whole time. So if it's sweeping... Um, where are they at? <laughs> well, the thing Never is, though, is that, like, whether or not you should care about this, about something like that happening, is whether or not it really detracts from how your community lives. Like, that's my thought. Like, if it's not really, like, for example, if your, your farmland isn't impacted or your garden itself isn't impacted or it's not, like, an incredible nuisance, I don't think you should care that much. Because the ecology will balance itself out anyway. Like, unless it's literally detracting from how you guys survive, then I don't think you should care. Like, that's my thought on that. Um, because it it will it mm -hmm. will have an impact or on the ecology, and the ecology will balance itself out for that impact. Yeah, and I, mean, I don't it, mean it, to discount the possibility that it'll cause a problem. It does say it likes grapes. Um, that's his host plant. Its preferred host is the Chinese sumac, which is what the tree of heaven is. I never heard of that either. But I fit, I'm looking at the Wikipedia article. I'm no, I'm an instant expert, right? I've read the <laughs> paragraph for the Wikipedia article. Um, but I found the big problem with it. It came from China. It comes from China. Oh. Yeah, but it's eating okay, Chinese so the, I mean, sumac. So you know what? You know, maybe so that don't plant Chinese back sumac to the, tree. Yeah, it gets us back to the native population of plants. <laughs> if that's yeah. what it's eating, then maybe. But I think extinct. problems like this are inevitable, though. If we want an interconnected world, we're going to start spreading uh, species from one spot to another, and there's going to be ecological impacts, and that's just going to happen. And if it really matters, then we need to find a way to combat it. And and like, okay, if you, if it really if it if it's a problem, then let's figure out a way to combat it, which requires people who are devoted to spending mental energy on that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe there's a pesticide, maybe there's another predator, maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's other things you can do. I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah. 
Someone says there's no way to properly combat it. I don't, I mean, I think that's a, that's quite a statement about, that's like only an omniscient person could say that. I don't know what that, unless, unless you're going to gatekeep what properly means. By our known knowledge, maybe. Uh, yeah, sure. Maybe no one knows how to do it so far. Like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Our um, knowledge system has no way to. I just when yeah, I read well, we a comment like that, I just translate just it. to get them to the point where they're manageable, right? Like mm. aphids exist, but we still have plants and we manage the aphids or whatever. Like whenever I read a comment like that, and no offense to the person who said it, but I just translate it and I say, I know of no way to properly combat it. Like, okay, I believe <laughs> well, that he, you know of no way saying, to properly combat it. He's saying it's a historical issue and it's been it's been a problem for a long time. That may be. I mean, okay. Um, but you know, it hasn't taken over China. They still seem to be okay. So there are ways to survive with the problem. If it's a problem, I don't, I don't know. There, there are, this says there are several natural predators in China. Maybe, you know, the, the right. predators, if the bug comes from China, there's probably predators in China for it. And, and here's the thing though, here. is that I would have to say that in all likelihood, the ecology will balance itself out by something going one species going, wow, this thing is abundant. I'm going to start eating it and adapt in that way. Yes. Like, oh, come on. It, it, that's usually like a lot of species suddenly change their eating habits based on what is available. Uh, and it suddenly does, it is not that sudden by human standards. It's sudden by ecological standards, uh, which means slow to us. But that's usually what would happen is that like some species is going to go, I can eat this and they'll, yeah. they'll grow mm -hmm. abundant. Yeah. Well, and look, I'd say I, that, it's, you know, go ahead. It's being evaluated under quarantine in the United States until researchers certain it will not become invasive. So hopefully whatever they're doing doesn't leak out. Yeah. Well, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, and I don't think some, uh, someone in chat said we should we should brainstorm about how to combat it. Like, I'm not going to speak for everyone on the panel, but I'm pretty sure we're completely unqualified to brainstorm about how to combat something that Keith just read about on Wikipedia. Yeah, not so, going to do uh, it. <laughs> I, the best way I can combat it is by saying, let there be fossil fuels and freedom so that people can spend time thinking about this and have cheap electricity and cheap power in order to combat problems such as this mm -hmm. and... You know, well, uh, if, well, I think that's the best. Someone in, so when we talked about the deer population and how we are now the ones in charge of handling that, and someone in chat had said that, well, we killed all the wolves, so that's why. And it, and it's like, well, yeah, because when a new, better predator comes along and takes out the previous keystone predator, they then have to handle all the prey animals that predator animal previously handled that's that's actually normal ecology that we just took part in we're just sapient enough to be aware of it so to me i'm sort of like we could take that responsibility on if we wanted to but we have to have some sort of use for taking out an, a specific animal uh such as those bugs <laughs> but maybe they'll try to turn them into burgers or something i don't know <laughs> And wolves exist. We just got rid of them from areas where we live in many places. Like they do, they do still exist in some spots. And right. uh, like that's one of those examples of like humans impacted by getting rid of a predator that destroys their lives. Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> we should not feel guilty about that. No, we, we totally should. we kicked the wolves' ass. 
so that we could grow food and not <laughs> have our children eat chickens. chickens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I once read a lot about colonial times wolf attacks for some unknown reason, and they were terrifying. They Wolf sure. packs were horrifying because like some guy who had a rifle shot like 17 wolves and all they found of him was bones and clothing because there were he killed 17 wolves sh- by shooting them and also hitting them with the rifle when he ran out of rounds and they still managed to tear him to shreds how big is that wolf pack so to wow. me i'm sort of like we us taking out most of the wolves is probably for the better because the right. wolf packs were huge they would take us out if they could yeah <laughs> That's 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 nature for you. That's the that's the uh, the delicate balance of the harmonious nurture balance. Yeah, that, who, that, I want to drop that environmentalist into naked in the middle of a wolf pack and be like, enjoy your balance. There you go. Return to nature. <laughs> All right. Um, we should probably wrap it up because it's been over two hours. Any final thoughts from anyone here? It's a great book. For people who are considering reading, I'd advise reading it. Um, by the way, I listened to the Audible version. You mentioned that in your opening. Um, it is okay. available on Audible, and the reader is good. I liked it. Okay. Yeah, it seems like the kind of book that would be uh, conducive to listening to. So, yeah. All right, well, cool. Um, Beverly, I know you're still around. Do we schedule the next book yet or no? I don't even know. <laughs> if we didn't, I apologize, and we will schedule it and let you all know what the next book is but i don't i don't know that we did we're still um no we didn't we we have a couple possibilities we're we're still uh (laughs) let's commit to picking one tuesday all right we'll we'll pick we'll pick one and we'll let you know so thank you everyone for watching um it's been it's been fun i do think you should uh check the book out um we'll put i'll put links in the description and other stuff we'll put links to um not just this book, but Alex has got a website with uh, little tidbits of information you can share. At the end of the book, he talks about, you know, please share this information and and share arguments and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, go ahead and do that. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining. Thanks for spending some some of your Sunday with us. We will uh, we'll see you uh, tomorrow for narrative distance. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production is known by the state of California to cause unregulated ideation that may be harmful to bureaucrats. Association with the following individuals, or tacos is strictly prohibited apropos of nothing 
I was just wondering how would you feel about another pandemic? Your president is in full control of his mental faculties. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.